I assume you have met a volatile person. Someone that goes off when things don't go the way they want. Maybe they have a meltdown every now and then. Uh, sometimes they're just intolerant of someone's behavior and, and they, they burst forth. You might call them short-tempered, uh, quick-tempered, short-fused, a hothead in its extreme form. Uh, there's a scene from the Avengers. Now you know I like to, to talk about the Avengers. It was fun. Um, there's a scene where the world is about to be destroyed, of course, because that's what the Avengers do is they save the world from destruction. And Bruce Banner shows up on the scene and one of the characters says, hey, now would be a good time to be angry. And he said, that's just it. Uh, I'm, I'm always angry. And so at, right after he says that, this takes place. So, so in the extreme form, you go from, uh, from, from normal composure to, to this uh, ferocious beast we've called the Hulk. Uh, one of the truths that we will recognize this morning is that God is the complete opposite of a hothead. God is always under control. We're in Exodus 33, and we're going to read there in just a moment and and look around a bit. But the first item of our attention is that God's long-suffering is on display throughout the Bible God's long-suffering is on display throughout the Bible. We're talking about the fruit of the Spirit. We started in Exodus, but we know what we've been talking about from the book of Galatians, how as we surrender our heart and mind to God, God has not set us free from the law so that we can do whatever we please. God has set us free from the law so that His Spirit could work in us and we could walk in lockstep with the Holy Spirit. We could walk in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. And when that takes place, there is a display of God's very nature in us. The Bible says in Galatians 5.22, For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering. Now, we've gone through love, joy, and peace. And this morning, our attention will be upon this concept of God displaying His character in us, and that is long-suffering. And this long-suffering that is God's character trait is on display throughout the Bible. And it is progressively revealed. In Exodus 33, take a look please at verse 19. Exodus 33, 19, the conversation is with Moses. Moses wants to see God's glory. And so God answers him in verse 19. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So there are three Hebrew terms that are used in verse 19. The first one is goodness. I will make all my goodness. The Hebrew term is tov. It has the idea of God's moral goodness, all of who He is. It really is maybe another way that we could say glory. It's the the fullness of God's character. Then he talks about the fact that God is gracious, the the Hebrew term chanan. God bestowing upon His people things they don't deserve and things they could not acquire for themselves. And then the term mercy, racham. Uh, You might remember the term uh, Rohama, 
or lo ruhama from the book of Hosea. When Hosea and um, Gomer had children, there was three different children that were mentioned. One of them was Rohama, and then lo ruhama. Actually, it was lo ruhama was the name, no mercy. And then he says, later on, I will call you Rohama. You will receive mercy. So the, the concept of God withholding from us something that we do deserve. So God is telling Moses, as Moses says, show me your glory. He, he needed something to hold on to. And God says, I, I will let all my goodness, my character, I will let my nature pass before you. And as he, he describes it, he says, I am a gracious, I'm a giving God, and I am a merciful God. I'm a, a withholding God, withholding judgment from you. As you get to the next chapter and the scene is unfolding, take a look at Exodus 34, beginning in verse 6. It says, The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, the same term is used in chapter 33, and gracious, and now God adds this, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children's children on the third, excuse me, to the third and the fourth generation. So we have this, this situation where God now passes before Moses and he says, I am Yahweh. He says it twice. The ineffable tetragrammaton. Tetragrammaton. The ineffable, the unspeakable four-letter word. God utters it. The Lord, the Lord. And then he says, I am merciful. I withhold from you judgment that you deserve. Gracious, I give to you blessing that you don't deserve. And then he describes himself as slow to anger. Now, it's interesting if you just try to understand the words slow to anger. It first starts with long, and then it says, you're not not ready for this one, I know you're not, nostril. I have a long nostril. It's an interesting expression. Please help me understand. (laughs) Well, the concept, it's a a Hebrew word picture, and we would say it kind of like this. This is an image here for you. You know how a bull, when it's about to go after the red blanket, the poor, that poor Spanish guy waving the red blanket, that bull's about to run, before he does it, he's snorting, snorting. And, and you can see the fury and the wrath and the anger ready to come out of that bull because he's going to charge at that poor guy. God is long before he gets to snorting anger. It's a word picture. For us to understand that God is not a raging inferno ready to blow. He is not out of control. He does not have a short fuse. And God confirms this again and again through the Old Testament. He confirms it in the law in numerous places. I'll just mention one of them. In Numbers 14, 18, it says this, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation. He brings it up again in the Psalms as He continues to to bring forth the truthfulness of His character. In, In Psalm 86 and verse 
15. It says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's again in Psalm 103 in verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. If you haven't gotten in enough yet, Psalm 145 in verse 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. So we have it in the law and we have it in the Psalms or the writings. Now as you look a little further, um, he also reiterates this to his people that, that God is a long-suffering God. He, he does this also in the prophets. Now, before I read the two prophet passages, both there's one in Joel and one in Jonah, try to think about the context of what's happening in the book of Joel. The book of Joel is, is God pronouncing to the nation that He was going to judge them because of their sin, the day of the Lord is coming. He's letting them know. And in the midst of this, God tells them through the prophet who He is. In Joel chapter 2, and verse 13, the end of the verse, it says, Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. And so He offers to His people His patient long-suffering, His his patient endurance with them. As you get to the book of Jonah, it's interesting the way that Jonah uses this quotation back from the book of Exodus. Exodus. Here's Jonah. You know about Jonah. Jonah's supposed to go and, and preach to Nineveh. And Jonah says, I don't like the Ninevites. <laughs> I don't like those in Nineveh. I don't want to go there. And so he runs. God swallows him up with a whale, spits him out on the shore. You know all the things that go on. You know, uh, Jonah goes and he, and he preaches and the people repent. It's like every preacher's delight is to see people hear the Word of God, the, the, the salvation of God, and to respond to that salvation and to turn to God. This is everyone, every preacher's delight. But Jonah was miffed. And this is what he says to God in prayer in Jonah 4.2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He's complaining right now that God was willing to save a group of people that didn't know Him. And the way he complains to God is saying, you are slow to anger. I knew you were slow to anger. I knew you wouldn't judge these people that I hate. God's long-suffering applies to His people, those that, that are His covenant people, and it applies toward God's relationship to people that are outside of that covenant as well. God is bearing long with people. It really is quite remarkable how patient God is. God's long-suffering shines brightest in the context of our failure. I want for you to look at what I might consider 
the most glorious display of God's long-suffering. Take a look at Romans chapter 3, please. Romans chapter 3. God's long-suffering is continuously being brought to our attention, and the, His his nature as a long-suffering God or His character as a long-suffering God is, is progressively being revealed to us. And it sees its fullest display in His work through Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9, you may be familiar with this, but before we read it, know what Paul is doing in the book of Romans in these first few chapters. He has one main objective, to tell us that the gospel saves sinners. But in these first few chapters, the way he brings that to our attention is by telling us that we are all sinners. He's letting us know that no matter who you are, no matter what you have as a background, no matter how refined you may be, intelligent, sophisticated, strong-willed, courageous, tough, whatever your background, there is one thing that's true of you, that's true of me, that's true of everyone. That we are sinners and we're in desperate straits. Here in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Are we religious people any better off? Are we who have the Word of God any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not spiritually. Not even one. So he is painting a pretty strong picture of our condemned state. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held, what? Accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of of sin. So he's he's painted a perfect picture for us to understand whether you're outside of the faith community or you're smack dab in the middle of the faith community. You are not justified. You are not made right with God. You don't have a standing with God of your own resources. We stand condemned. We are all under condemnation. This is what he's telling us. Verse 21 now. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So another way that God demonstrates His righteousness that's outside of the law, although that the, the law and the prophets bear witness to that righteousness, it says this, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all 
who trust Christ are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Listen carefully now. Don't, don't lose attention because we need to see verses 25 and 26 to really understand what Paul is getting at or why we're in this passage particularly. It says, Whom God put forth, Jesus, God put forth as a propitiation, as a settlement of God's wrath by His blood to receive by faith. That was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, it's another word for long-suffering, in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul has just painted the picture that we are all sinners, yes, That the law doesn't justify us? No. There is something that justifies us, a righteousness that comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus has done what's necessary so that when we trust Christ as our Savior, we are justified or made righteous before God. But listen to what he says in verse 25. It says, In his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. In other words, you've got... Several thousand years of history that took place before Jesus was crucified on a cross. Now we know that the crucifixion of Jesus was what's called the propitiation for our sins. The settlement of God's wrath. But there are thousands of years before that took place. All those thousands of years, God in His divine forbearance overlooked former sin. He didn't dismiss them. He didn't say, sin is okay. Sin is not a problem. He didn't say any of that. It was dealt with in the death, particularly, in the burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. God could have at any time said, I am finished with this. Rebellious people in every way. In His wrath, He could have rained down judgment but in His divine forbearance, His long-suffering, God held off and brought forth a just judgment for all of those sins previous and all of those sins that would take place after it in one death. The once-for-all death of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's forbearance, God's long-suffering is seen most beautifully in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ because it is through that death, burial, and resurrection that a, a person like me and a person like you can have a perfect standing with God. Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you seen that you are a sinner? And that your sin will condemn you. But that Jesus died on the cross. That He might be a sin offering for you. And that God offers Him to you as a solution to your sin problem. Have you trusted Jesus Christ? If so, if you've trusted Christ, you've experienced this long-suffering of God to the point of you'll never ever experience God's wrath. If you have not trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you also have experienced long-suffering. 
We're going to come back to that concept at the end of our time together. But know this, that long-suffering He bears with and He bears with, but only those that have trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior have that, that judgment fully and forever stayed because it's been paid for. As we look a little further into our discussion this morning, not only is God's long-suffering displayed and on on display throughout the Bible and progressively revealed, God's long-suffering is supposed to be displayed in our lives. God's people are to be a picture of Him. God's people are to be displaying God's character so that the world around us sees God's goodness and mercy and righteousness and slowness slowness to anger. Take a look, please, at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13. So this character of God bearing with people... Now, I want you to think about this. When, when you think about love and joy and peace, those are conditions of the soul, right? Joy and peace, particularly, we would talk about them in relation to our circumstances, well, someone cut me off on the road and I, and I can still have peace. Or uh, I lost my job and I can still have peace. I, I found out I have, I have a disease and I can still have peace. I, I have pain in my body and I can still have peace. Uh, I have joy even, even when the, the economy is doing what it does. And I have joy even when our country is run the way it's run. I, have, I can have joy in, in the face of my circumstances. When it comes to this concept of long-suffering, you move from circumstances directly to dealing with people. So from inanimate objects to personal beings. When we talk about long-suffering now, you're talking about people that might hurt you intentionally or unintentionally. People that are offensive to you intentionally or unintentionally. And it becomes a lot more personal than some guy that you never met before cutting you off on the road, or uh, some boss having to make cuts at work and saying, you know, uh, I'm, I'm sorry that you have to be one of the ones I have to cut, but, but this is the way it is, and, and so I'm sorry, here's your pink slip. That might feel personal, but it's a circumstance. Whereas someone directly and intentionally dealing with you, now we have a little bit of an issue. You think about relationships in our home. You're with each other every day, right? At least in most circumstances, you're with each other every day, maybe several hours a day. And so things can, can start to get under the skin, you know, leaving the laundry on the floor, leaving the toilet seat up. Uh, maybe the, the meals are a little too health, heart healthy for your tastes or whatever the case may be. Or maybe there's, you know, a project that's been left undone for months on end and you're, you're just frustrated. There are, there are shingles falling off the house. That, you know, paint projects need to be done. The, the, the lawn is now up to your knees. Those kinds of things that, like, all of them start to grate on, on those in your house if, if there are things that are left undone. And here's what God tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 4. Love is, what does it say? Patient. Now, let me tell you a little bit of, here's a little Greek lesson for you. You ready? There are two different words in the New Testament used for terms that sound like patience. Patience and long-suffering are not the same concept. Hupomone is patience. Makrothumia 
is long-suffering. Well, what's the difference? You know, I, I, we can use the terms, and some translations use the terms interchangeably, like they're the same thing. They're not the same thing. Hupomone, or patience, is patient endurance with circumstances, whereas makruthumia, which is long-suffering, is patient endurance with people. This word here in 1 Corinthians 13 is patient endurance with people. Also in Galatians chapter 5, which is the source of our study, the the term long-suffering there is patient endurance with people. So when we talk about love, you know, we all know that God wants us to love one another. And this is not a, a suggestion, but a command, right? In order to love one another, we need to patiently endure with one another. This is, this is the reality of, of the fact. And when, when things are constantly in your face that are irritating, this is when long-suffering shines. But it's also when long-suffering is hard. I have good news and bad news. The bad news is, if you try to be long-suffering for the rest of the days of your life, you will really, really struggle because people around you will really, really struggle. And because they struggle, you bearing with them is going to be hard. The good news is, long-suffering is a fruit of the Spirit. So we'll get there. But with that being said, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. God's long-suffering is supposed to be displayed in our lives. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is turning the page from the mainly doctrinal section to the mainly practical section, though both sections in Ephesians are both doctrinal and practical. As he turns his attention to the more practical section in Ephesians chapter 4, he charges us with this, beginning in verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, in, uh, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So he uses the word patience. It's again the word long-suffering. Patient endurance with people. He tells us in the context of church life that there are going to be things that are hard to deal with. Why? Because when we are saved, God doesn't make it so that we don't ever sin again in this life. If, if I had it my way, if I could put in a request, I would say, God, as soon as I get saved, remove all of my sinfulness and just let me be perfectly in, in union with you and in, in communion with you so that only good things come out of my mouth, only good things come into my head, and only good things come from my actions. If I could have one thing um, from the Lord, I would say, God, make me sinless right now. <laughs> that day's coming. Unfortunately, it's not until I don't breathe this air anymore. It's when I breathe celestial air, the air of heaven, that I will be sinless forever. But in the meantime, I sin, and guess what? I don't mean to be bad and mean to you, but you sin too. I know you don't think so. Yeah, I know you do. I know you know that you sin. Because there are 150 sinners in one place, you can guarantee that that sin will eventually rub up against each other in a way that we don't like. In a household, the same thing. In the workplace, the same thing. Whatever corporation, whatever practice you're involved in, you've got people around, there are going to be people, and their practices will rub up against yours, and yours will rub up against theirs. And God says, here's the calling. You want to work, uh, walk in a manner worthy of the calling? Do so with patient endurance with people. The church must be this way. 
God tells us it's going to be hard, which is why he tells us in verse 3 how, how we have to work eagerly, eager to maintain. That's a, it's a, it's a, a great intensity to this project. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul brings this to our attention again. He says, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, the people that don't do anything. Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. They quit so easily. Help the weak. Man, they really struggle. I wish that the verse ended there, don't you? Not really. He says, be patient with all. Bear with the idleness of those who do nothing. Bear with the scruples, I love that word from from Romans chapter 15, of the weak. Those that are easily discouraged, bear with them. Those that seem to not have the kind of strength that they ought to for a certain stage in life, bear with them. This is the call. The call is that God's long-suffering is to be displayed in our lives. All right, well, that's good. We we see that God is is long-suffering, and it's displayed and progressively revealed. We see that we're called to display that long-suffering. Good to know, and and sadly, probably don't do as well a a good a job at that as we would like to. Uh, Thirdly, and very importantly, God's long-suffering displayed in our lives brings Him glory. God's long-suffering displayed in our lives brings Him glory. That's in your house. Wives, when your husband isn't everything he ought to be and you, by God's grace, empowered by God's Spirit, bear with his folly, you're bringing glory to God. Husbands, when your wife doesn't do everything that you have designed for her and things that you expect and things you think this, this is what a, a good wife ought to do. And by God's grace, you're empowered to bear with and not look down and not have that faulty expectation of your wife. God is glorified. When, when you're dealing with your children and your children dealing with your parents because your parents are not uh, flawless for sure, uh, when you're dealing with your co-workers and, and fellow Christians in the church, when we're Bearing with one another in our failures, God is glorified. Don't, don't, don't miss out on the, the benefit of this. Oftentimes we look at, at these calls in our lives and we're like, okay, I've, I've got to do this. And, and so we, we kind of get task-minded. And so we're, we're trying to be long-suffering or we're trying to have joy. We're trying to be at peace. Don't, don't forget the bigger picture, folks. When God displays these things in your life, First of all, he's on display, his kingdom is on display, and he is being glorified. Take a look, please, at 1 Timothy chapter 1. Just a couple more verses of Scripture for our consideration this morning. This passage in 1 Timothy was our responsive reading. It again speaks toward God's long-suffering, but it also speaks of how that long-suffering of God brings glory to himself, and how the one who is a recipient of God's long-suffering should view their then responsibility to display that very same long-suffering. Here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, look at what God's Word says. 
I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. In other words, He, he says, this, this is someone I want serving me. Well, what kind of a person was Paul? Verse 13, though formerly I was a blasphemer. You know that blasphemy of the Spirit is condemnable by eternal damnation? Paul says, I was one of those guys. And furthermore, I was a persecutor. The people that were preaching the name of Jesus Christ, I was hauling them off to magistrates. And some of them, I was party to killing one, namely Stephen. And he says he was an insolent opponent, one who spoke rashly and disastrously toward the gospel. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, listen carefully, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect what? That's long-suffering. As an example to those who were to believe in me for eternal life. I am a channel. I am a display of a God who bore long with me. I am the chiefest of sinners. And God displayed His perfect patience in me by bringing me to Himself. And then, as an illustration, as an example, as a channel of those who would come after me. What is Paul's response to all of this? To the King of the ages. Immortal. Invisible. The only God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He praises God that he could be this vessel. Now, Peter said it a very similar way. So we've got Paul's illustration. He, 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 was, he was an opponent of God and God saved him. We don't save our opponents. We squash our opponents when we have the opportunity. But God saved his opponent. And, and God tells us to do the very same thing. He says, I'm an example of this. But take a look at 1 Peter chapter 2. Just briefly going to look at this passage. And we're going to go kind of in backwards order of how the passage is recorded. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18 and following, Peter says... Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure it? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered you, leaving you an example 
so that you might follow in his footsteps. So he's letting us know, okay, you may be treated unfairly. Uh, People may hurt you. Now, this is in the workplace. I don't think it has to be isolated to there for our own consideration of this. Whatever environment you find yourself, you may be treated unjustly. And God says, Jesus was treated unjustly for you. His, His treatment was an illustration of how you might be treated. And it's a gracious thing. It's a... It's, a, it's something that brings praise to God in God's sight when you endure while doing good. Now, moving backwards in the passage, look at verses 15 and 16. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. You'll notice this concept of freedom and servitude kind of brings us back to our original passage that we didn't read this morning, but back in Galatians chapter 5, don't let your freedom serve as a license to sin, but by love, serve one another. That's the context of the fruit of the Spirit. Here in this passage, he's talking about that, that our, our freedom is to be used to serve others and, and to, to be a good servant. And in the process, you'll put to silence the ignorance of those who accuse you. Listen, that people can say all kinds of things. They can say all kinds of negative things about Christians, or you particularly. But if you're serving God rightly, with joy, with, with peace, with long-suffering, as you demonstrate Christ in the workplace, those, those things are hollow. They're hollow accusations. So here, Peter says, silence them now. But that's not the end of the story, folks. The ultimate objective is not to silence our critics. Look at verse 11. Verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Why? So that when they speak against you as evildoers they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So silence now, verses 15 and 16, but praise later in verses 11 and 12. The ultimate objective is not to silence our critics. It's for for those that might be critical to see the glory of God, to see the long-suffering of God in our lives, to see the love of God in our lives, to see the joy of God in our lives, the peace of God in our lives, and, and so forth and so on as we go through the list of the fruit of the Spirit. People need to see who God is. God is putting himself on display. Yes, he's de- declared his power by the things he's made, but here and now, as we are his people, his ambassadors, his ministers of reconciliation. People should be seeing God's character in us. And this character trait of long-suffering is at at the front of that list, toward the front of that list. Back in Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and long-suffering. This long-suffering we're talking about is not learned behavior. It doesn't arrive into our lives from a sermon. It doesn't arrive into our lives by reading. It doesn't arrive because we've studied it, because we've memorized passages about it, 
or because we've even meditated on those passages. It will always and only be evidenced in our lives when the Holy Spirit is ruling our hearts. It will always and only be evidenced when the Holy Spirit is ruling our hearts. The fruit of the Spirit isn't like going to the store and picking some things off the shelf and say, well, I'm going to work on this one. I mean, this, is, this is going to be really great for the project. I'm going to grab one of these and put it in my cart and go pay for it and move out the door. The, the, the fruit of the Spirit is a package deal. You're not going to exhibit God's love and not exhibit His long-suffering. You're not going to exhibit God's joy and not exhibit His gentleness. You're not going to exhibit God's peace and not exhibit faithfulness. You're not going to exhibit long-suffering and not exhibit self-control. It's a package deal. The fruit, the evidence, of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Against such there is no law. When the Holy Spirit is ruling our hearts, all of the evidences of the Spirit are in operation. You know, it's, it's really easy to become upset over hurtful things that someone does to us. We only know the half of it. We don't know what's going on in someone's heart. Yet God knows everything. He knows the thoughts and intents of our hearts. He knows every time that we're in rebellion against Him. He knows every time we are envious of someone. Every time we're covetous. He knows every time we are hateful, angry, Depressed. He knows every time that we don't trust Him. He knows everything about us. Before we utter a word, He knows what is in our hearts. And He still demonstrates long-suffering toward us. He is quite remarkable. And while He has passed over our sin in accordance with His divine forbearance, this does not mean that He will hold His judgment forever. One last passage this morning, Acts chapter 17. While we turn to Acts chapter 17, there are some who think that because of God's benevolent love and because of Jesus' incredible sacrifice, that everyone goes to heaven because God is long-suffering. No, God is long-suffering. God is long-suffering. And Jesus' death is sufficient for all mankind at all times. And God's love is a universal declaration. He causes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. But as we look at this passage in Acts 17, and I'm just going to read through it and make just a couple of comments. Listen carefully. Listen carefully to the doctrine that is offered to us in this historical account. Acts 17, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, 
nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our beings, as even some of your own prophets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Listen carefully. The times of ignorance God overlooked. It's a very similar concept to bearing with people. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now. But now. He commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You hear what this passage is telling us? It's talking about God being a creator God, the one who is the, 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 one who's the source of all living creatures, the one who gives to each one life and breath and all things, this one that doesn't need me to worship Him, to be God. He is God whether I worship Him or not. This God has overlooked all of the ignorance that has been around for days and days and years and years of all mankind. God has overlooked it. But now, He issues a call. And that call to everyone everywhere is this. Repent. Repent. Turn from your sin and turn to Me. I've done what's necessary. I have sent My Son to die on the cross for you. He he bore your sin. He suffered My judgment against that sin. He was buried and I raised Him up. And and I, I want you to know, He is coming back and He will judge those that don't believe, that do not repent. God's long-suffering, He bears long with us, but there is an end. It's long-suffering. It's slow to anger. It's slow to wrath. But don't think that for one second that means there's no wrath. Don't think for one second that that means no judgment. What do you think Jesus did on the cross? This was not some fairy tale. Jesus bore my sin on the cross. Why? Because God judges sin. His wrath is is angry against sin. God holds it back. He overlooks it. He forbears long. But judgment comes. It came in the form of Jesus Christ. Praise be to God. We'd have nothing without that. God poured out His wrath on His Son. His perfect, spotless Son who did everything to please the Father. He poured His wrath out on Him. He was slow to wrath, but the wrath came. If 
you've trusted Jesus Christ, you'll never experience that wrath. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. This is the glorious in the beginning of Romans 8 and the end of Romans 8. But you know what, friend? If you've not trusted Jesus Christ, that, that slowness to anger, you're glad He has it. But the anger's coming. That slowness to wrath, you're glad He has it. But the wrath is coming. Which is why He says, all men everywhere repent repent he doesn't say crawl up a mountain on your knees he doesn't tell you to do something you can't do he says turn from your sin this is not helping you this will not save you this will not give you lasting joy turn to me i'll give you everything i'll give you eternal bliss i'll give you my son i'll give you my righteousness i'll give you my peace i'll give you my joy Turn from your way. Turn to me. Folks, maybe you've never come to this place where you've turned to Jesus Christ. Maybe you don't understand exactly the, the weightiness of God's long suffering. You can today. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. None of us are good enough to avoid God's wrath. Only Jesus. And He laid down His life so He could taste that wrath for us. A substitution. Trust Jesus. Experience eternal rescue. Not just benefit from God's character and His nature of long-suffering. Listen. Let it be removed from you forever. How? Trust Jesus. Friend, believer, God's called us to display His long-suffering. You, you know, you know how sinful and rebellious you are, and God bears along with you. God is willing to share His long-suffering with you as you will walk in the power of His Spirit. Let's do this. Let's ask God to help us. I don't know what your situation is. Only you do. Right now, as we take just a moment of silence, just a moment of silence, you deal with the Lord in accordance with where you are, believer, unbeliever, deal with the Lord asking Him for this glorious long-suffering to be displayed. Father, we are truly in awe of how kind You are and how patient You are with us and with man. We're thankful, many of us, that we will never experience Your wrath because Jesus took that wrath upon himself and you willingly poured it out on him. Thank you that you have rescued us. We ask that you'd help us to display that same long-suffering in our homes, in our workplace, in the church, and where we go. Not for our benefit, not so that people will think well of us, but so that others will see you on display, in your glory, on display, and that you would be pleased. Father, we pray for anyone here that's never trusted Jesus as their Savior. We pray that they would turn to you, that they would repent of their sin, turn to you and receive life forever, and that they would never experience your wrath. We know that only you can do this. We pray that you would quicken, make alive their, their spirit that they might have life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.